0: You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change. Maximus Decimus Meridius, famous line from the Gladiator movie in 2023 years ago said, are you not entertained? I think God's got more than entertainment for us today. You? He's got a word about himself for you today. Who needs that? Yeah? All right. You're allowed to talk. You don't have to raise your hand. I'm not going to call on you today. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we will open up God's Word in Judges chapter six. Father, we come into your presence today. We we need you. We need you to do something here in this meeting. I mean, I can talk. I can talk for a long time, but will you speak? Will you speak to our hearts? Will you speak from your word? Will you speak into our minds and into our marriages and to our relationships with our kids and our parents and our coworkers and our classmates and our teammates? And Father, will you do something so supernatural? I could never even pray it right now, but will, will you right now remove the distractions? Whether that's silencing phones, even if we don't have our silence around, whether that's taking away thoughts of what's happening at lunch or what happened right before we got here or a dispute that we have or a bill that we have to pay, will you remove all of that right now? Will you meet with us? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. That movie, Gladiator, uh, is one of the classics. In fact, if you look at many people's movie critics and reviews and articles, or list of top 100 movies ever that will be listed on there. And it's not just because of the vengeance theme that's in there. It's not because, you know, Russell Crowe's just awesome in there. Maximus is actually not a, a real character. He's a fake character. It's fictional, but it's connected loosely to some Roman history. And some of those characters are, are real people. And what's happened is that he becomes a gladiator. And that scene where he says his name, I am Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, husband to a murdered wife. Yo, he says those lines, it's he's just been called a slave by a guy named Commodus, played by Joaquin Phoenix. And he is the one who's put him in the situation that he's in. I think one of the reasons why that's been a famous movie and why so many people identify with that movie is because you're cheering, not for vengeance as much as liberation, because Maximus is in slavery and He doesn't want to be there. He's in a difficult situation that he's got to decide whether to just let it happen and die or fight and try to survive. And we've all experienced that. We've all had our back against the wall. We've all had the odds stacked against us. We've all wanted some release. We've all been angry. And so we identify with that. And Ridley Scott, the director, knows how to tell a good story. And so he's standing face to face, Maximus is, with Commodus, this guy that he wants vengeance from because... Commodus is the one who, the way he became powerful was by killing his father, Marcus Aurelius, who's a real character in history. And Maximus, that's why he says, I, I'm a servant of the true emperor. He's saying to Commodus, I know what you did. And, and one of the unique things that Ridley Scott did in that movie is what we tried to highlight in showing you that clip was the getting down in the dirt and grabbing the dirt. <laughs> Hopefully you noticed that. Did you notice it when you watched the movie before we pulled it out? He'll kneel down and he'll grab the dirt and always rubs it in his hands. Sometimes he sniffs it, he smells it. That's kind of weird. What is that? He does it right before the battles and. And you wonder, like, is that just like a pregame ritual that he does? If you watch some athletes, there's oftentimes athletes will have some pre-game ritual that they do, the way that they enter the field. If you're a baseball fan, you know you see this stuff all the time. I'm watching, I'm like, can we speed this game up a little bit? Like the pitcher every time has got to do this, like, oh, touch the turtle, love the thing, all this stuff. It's like, your makeup's fine, buddy. Would you throw the ball? And so, But, you know, if you've watched basketball, you've seen LeBron, you know, chalk up in the air. You've seen Tiger wears his red shirt on Sundays. Michael Phelps has his headphones on and comes out and I don't even know how he gets his arms to do all that. And there's actually studies that have been done by psychologists. You know, some of those guys are being superstitious, some of them are OCD, but some of them it's a ritual that gets them into a mindset. One study on elite athletes said that 80% of elite athletes have that because they're trying to get into what athletes call the zone. So what is what is Maximus doing there? And and I'm not just gonna make this up, but Ridley Scott says the reason why, and this is one of the reasons why I think this movie has stood the test of time. Because Ridley Scott knew how to tell a good story and it's, it's complicated, like our lives. He said the reason why we had Maximus get down, grab the dirt, and sniff the dirt is because it reminds him of his mortality. He knows if he loses this battle that he'll return to the dirt. But also, if you know the story and you know the character, and I know for some of you it's been 20 or 23 years since you've seen it, so I'll give you grace, (laughs) they'll show him walking through a field and there's wheat and he's coming to his house and, and he mentions like even in that one scene where he says to Quintus, dirt cleans off easier than blood. He's talking about being a farmer. He's a farmer. So he's remembering where he started. He's remembering what can happen if he does not engage. And then he's remembering his wife and his son who were killed. And that's why it is that he fights. So, where he started, who he is, and why he does what he does. See, a lot of us, we know what it's like to have our back up against the wall, and we know what it's like to be in difficult circumstances, and we want to overcome, but we feel like victims. And so, when we see a story like that, somebody that's slaved, and then, yeah, he's seeking vengeance, and we know it's cruel. You don't want vengeance. The vengeance is the Lord. Is it right? Right? No. Some of y'all, we watch the movie, and we're like, you get him. It's justice. (laughs) <laughs> because we feel frustrated. Anybody here um, frustrated ever? Overwhelmed? Feel like you're back in the corner? All right, today's message is for you because we're going to talk about being on the brink of breakthrough. Anybody need a breakthrough? I hear some people are responding already. All right, you can interact here. I'm okay if you raise your hand. If that's your style, that's fine, but we can talk. <laughs> if you've got your Bibles, Judges chapter six, the brink of breakthrough. We're going to look at a character that many of you have heard of before. And so, so far we've looked at Shamgar. I think there was like one person in both services that had ever even heard of Shamgar. Uh, We looked at a guy named Ehud, the left-handed assassin for Jesus. Uh, We looked at Othniel. Like we've looked at these people that most, most of us, if we weren't in this study, have never even thought about these characters. But there's a couple in Judges. Deborah, we talked about. Samson, maybe the most famous. Or the guy we're looking at today, Gideon. But if you know anything about Gideon, it's always about a fleece. We're not even going to get to that today. That's next week. And by the way, it's not about God speaking to you. He already knows what he's supposed to do. So go reread that. If you heard a message that said, put out a fleece and then, or no, you shouldn't put out a fleece. It ain't about any of that stuff. Read it. This week, the brink of breakthrough. What's happening is the same stuff that's been happening. They're in this cycle. But when we get into the book here of, of Gideon, Gideon gets more verses than any other judge. He gets 100 verses. Samson gets 96. Samson gets four chapters. Gideon gets three. So who wins? I don't know. But the narrator's doing something different here because up to this point, it's been the same deal. People do evil in the sight of the Lord. What's evil in the sight of the Lord? Is it there are, they're having sex with each other and they're not supposed to? Or is it that they're killing babies? Or is it that, yeah, it's all that, but he tells us what the point is and what God's looking at. They did what was right in their own eyes. And one of the reasons why you don't hear sermon series on the book of Judges very often is because it says some things about our God that many of us don't want to be true about our God. That a lot of times when we're in difficulty, yes, there's spiritual battle. We got an enemy. He wants to devour us. Sometimes that's going on. Sometimes we're reaping what we sow and it's it's our own doing. We've seen the enemy. They are us. Sometimes, and we don't want to talk about this, God's the one fighting against you. And I have quoted oftentimes what I haven't put up on the screen, so I want you to know this isn't me making this up. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's James chapter 4. So if we could put that verse up, that'd be great for some people that are like, I don't believe that. I don't agree with him. It's in the Bible. There are other verses and I gave the guys on the slides a bunch of them. I won't tell you all of them today but um, how about this one? Matthew, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Remember what's going on in Judges? Here's how the book ends. Spoiler alert. Plug your ears. You don't want to know. Last verse. Judges chapter 21 verse 25. There's no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You do you. Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. Those are great slogans for people who think that they're the ultimate authority in their life. And God calls that evil in his sight. And then he is the one that's causing the difficulty in their lives of his own children. Oh, Pastor Scott, I don't like that. I don't, like, don't, don't talk about God that way. Uh, that my God is just a God of love. Okay, yeah. And the New Testament says he only gives good gifts to his children. Huh? You know as sinful fathers how to give good gifts to your kids. How much more does your father, that's Jesus talking. How is this a good gift? Well, maybe God's goodness and love is more developed than yours. Maybe part of him taking you to another level is some of you coming to grasp with that. And that the pain and the difficulty that's in your life, he's brought into your life, he brought in, not allowed, brought into your life to make you into who he wants you to be. Using other people's sin, using sinful people, using your own stuff. That's what's happening in Judges. Two truths that you can jot down uh, if you haven't already. There's always a path to renewal. And when we cry, he always comes. When we cry, you cry out from your heart, he always comes. Here's what's going on in Judges 6. The people are doing the same thing, but we're gonna get beyond just the general cycle. We're gonna get into the details today. Who's in the details? You don't wanna say the devil in here, do you? But you all thought it. (laughs) Let's not give him too much credit. He's not the one who knows the hairs on your head. Wove you together in your mother's womb. Put your DNA in every molecule in your body in there. That's God. God's in these details. Look at it. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian. So who gave them into the hand of Midian? Okay, the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian. Those are wicked, evil people that are their enemies. Seven years mark that and the hand of Midian overpowered Israel wait those are God's people God gave them, and because of Midian the people of Israel made for themselves here's the situation they're in circumstances the dens that are in the mountains so they're homeless they're living in the mountains now and the caves and the strongholds for here's the reason whenever the Israelites planted crops the Midianites and Amalekites wait a minute Midianites and Amalekites are enemies (laughs) the enemy of your enemy is your friend (laughs) Here we have the Midianites and the Amalekites coming together because of their mutual hatred for Israel. And God is the one that's strengthening them. The people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel. And no sheep or ox or donkey. So they stole their cars. They took their tools. They don't have any food. Why? For they would come up With their livestock and their tents, and and why didn't Israel just stop this? They would come like locusts in number, meaning there were were so many, they were innumerable. There were so many people we couldn't even count them. Both they and their camels. Camels aren't animals of war at this time. They know they're going to win. They're casually rolling up into Israel to take all their stuff. They couldn't be counted. So they laid waste to the land as they came in. And in verse 6, and Israel was brought very low because of Midian And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Why? When we cry, he comes. And they're close. They're close to the beginning of a breakthrough. I don't think they're there yet. And I'll tell you why in just a minute. I think they're at the brink of breakthrough. But here's what we need to know today. That a spiritual breakthrough begins with brokenness. Spiritual breakthrough begins at the point of brokenness. Remember when Maximus would get down in the dirt and he grabs the dirt? One of the things that he's doing is remembering where he began as a farmer. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you know the beginning of a relationship with Jesus is brokenness. We call Jesus our Lord. That means he's in charge of us and our savior. That means he rescued us. You needed to be rescued, which means you got to a point where you knew you couldn't help yourself. You didn't just need an assistant. We don't call Jesus my Lord an assistant. You didn't need a little help. Like you were doing good, but not enough. And so you had to call it. No, it's like you're helpless. And the Bible says you were hopeless without Jesus. Meaning anything you did have hope in was actually empty hope. It's a wish. The Bible defines hope differently. That's when you have a confident expectation of something you know to be true you haven't experienced yet. And so our hope then shifted into Jesus for our ultimate salvation of eternity with God and relationship with him, the forgiveness of our sins and freedom. Many of the things that our souls are longing for. So when we see someone oppressed fighting for their freedom, we can identify. Even if you don't know Jesus yet. But here's the reality. You can't even be a Christian if you've never experienced spiritual brokenness. So if you think that you became a Christian because you started going to church and you maybe morally cleaned yourself up or you've always believed certain facts, that is not what the Bible teaches. Because when we talk about brokenness here, I'm not talking about like when you, you, know, you drop your phone and it cracks the screen, but it still works. And if you got an insurance plan, you can go get a new one. So we just to kind of exchange it or you, know, you break the window at your house and you get the window replaced or you break you know, whatever it is, the door on your car, it doesn't work right. You spray a little WD-40 on there, or like whatever, no, it's not talking about that. A lot of stuff that we have, when we break it, we throw it out, we get a new one. That's just how we work as a consumer culture. God wants to get us to the place of brokenness because he redeems the brokenness. And we have to go to that place of brokenness because it's that brokenness that we see our sin for what it really is and our helplessness that we can't fix it. And unless God does something, nothing of value is going to take place. Now, the world understands a level of this. Because you'll hear the world even talk about an an internal, whether it's when a romantic relationship stops and you hear it sung about in a song or when uh, someone dies that you love, they talk about being heartbroken. Sometimes heartbreak can be so deep that you actually physically feel it. Spiritual brokenness is when you realize, I don't need to fix all this stuff out here in order to be okay, but there's some stuff going on in here and I can't fix it. Unless God does something. And so the reason why I'm telling you I don't think that they're quite at the place of brokenness yet is because what they're crying out about is all about what's happening out here. And we don't have time to tear apart every verse in chapter 6, but if you, you go back through chapter 6 and, and you see some of what's happening here, it says in Judges 6, verse 1, uh, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, and we don't need to get into all the details of what it is because the book keeps telling us they went after idols. And the point's not Baal, Astra, like all these different gods. It's not even about statues. It's that they're worshiping creation rather than the creator. And when we do that, we're showing we think we know more than God. They're doing what's right in their own eyes. And all the other stuff that happens, killing babies, sexual immorality, all that stuff, it's just symptoms of what's the problem. But they don't know that. They think the problem is Midian. And so even though they have a, an issue with God, and even though there's a heart problem, they think the answer is military. Can you imagine a group of people that are so broken spiritually, they can't see their spiritual problem, but they look at their circumstances and go, we need the government to fix this. <laughs> we, thankfully, wouldn't do that, but all those other Christians out there... Hmm. Sorry, plank, smack, sorry. Oh, it out. <clears throat> so the Lord's done something here and if you think I'm making that up today or you're like, Pastor Scott, I don't like that God that you're talking about. Well, it's the God of the Bible. Uh, Judges chapter four and verse two says the Lord sold them into slavery. Judges chapter three and verse 12. And the people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord and the Lord strengthened their enemy Eglon. The Lord did that, didn't allow it. He did that. A lot of us don't like that language, and pastors have watered this down. That's why you don't hear judges very much. Chapter 3, verse 8 Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He sold them into the hand, and he talks about enemies. So, God the Deliverer, who delivered them through the Red Sea, is now selling people into slavery, not allowing slavery to come, not allowing the enemy, like in the book of Job. He's the one causing the pain. Hmm. He's got great plans for Israel. They think they know better. Oftentimes, before God uses us greatly, he will wound us greatly. But they can't see it. And so they cry out in verse 6. He comes. He's gracious. But I believe that we can tell that they don't know their problem because in verses 8 through 10, he sends an unnamed prophet. They know their pain. They don't know their problem. If you don't know your problem, it's real hard to come with the right solution to the problem. I think most of us have probably either known someone, maybe it's happened to you, or at least heard of somebody who who finds out they have cancer but they didn't know they had it. Have you experienced that? Give me a little bit of body language feedback here. You guys got that? You ever heard of somebody that's like, you have two months to live or two weeks to live? It's like, what? I wish I'd have known that. 52 weeks? I wouldn't have been going to work. Like, you just would have lived different. Could you imagine somebody, say a young person, 18 years old, dies, and then you find out they had cancer. It's happened. If you want to look up a story, there's a young girl named Ellie Walsh. Ellie Walsh. You can look that up. and find it pretty quick on Google. She's 18 years old. She was at a Christmas Eve party and having a great time with her friends like nothing was wrong in life. Just living like an 18-year-old, hung out with family, had a good time. Three days later, she felt gravely ill. They took her to the hospital. There were some complications with surgery. She died. What they found and the reason why she was having surgery, she had a tumor in her stomach. And her mom said, in one of the articles that I read, my biggest regret is I didn't know, so I didn't even get to give her a proper goodbye. She just went in for surgery and then we were all shocked. Can you imagine? And then finding out she had cancer. If you dig into her story a little bit more, what you'll find out is that she had had some stomach pain for a couple of years and she had lost a bunch of weight, but nobody knew and the test didn't show. And, And so the mom said that the doctors, oftentimes when they would come in saying, she's having pain in her side, we've been before, she's in pain in her stomach, we've done these tests, they would give her acetaminophen, Tylenol. Treating cancer with Tylenol? Think about that. We'll just deal with the pain symptom, but you have a cellular core problem here? If you don't know the problem, it's real hard to come with the right solution here we got these people they think their problem is their circumstances around them and God's trying to do something in them how could they be so blind well I've mentioned this we haven't unpacked this yet in this series one of the things that the Bible is crystal clear about is that when we worship creation we start to resemble the things that we worship In fact, if you want to dig into a a lot deeper on your own and and get a bunch of verses on it, I'll give you a couple right now, but if you want like a thousand verses on it and a bunch of theological words on it, there's a guy named Gregory Beale. He wrote a book and the summary of the whole book, it's about idolatry and it talks about the gods that we make is the name of the book. Um, The summary of the whole book is this. And so if you don't want that, who likes cliff notes? You want cliff notes? Here's the cliff notes. Here's the thesis. And he goes to prove to the whole book. It's this. We resemble what we revere, either For our ruin or our restoration? It doesn't say we become what we revere. It's not like, oh man, I revere fitness. And so if I just really worship that, I'm gonna have a six pack. That's not what I'm saying. I think the great families are the key. And if I just I'll have a great family. No, it's the same as you worship God. You don't become God, but you'll become more like God. And you'll become more like your idols if you worship anything in creation. And the Bible's really clear about what that means. And what that means is the idols, whether it's a golden calf in Exodus 32, or whether it's covetousness, which is in Colossians chapter 3. Okay, so that's a feeling of the heart. That's not of a statue. Whenever something of creation is more important in your heart than God, that's called idolatry. Worshiping creation rather than the creator. And what happens is when we worship creation, we become like an idol. And here's what all the idols are like. They look like life, and they lack spiritual life. And that's what happens in our lives. You know what's really interesting? Whenever you read this, like we read about the, there's a generation, they didn't know the Lord, but then they cry out to God. You know why? Because they knew about him. They know the story of the Exodus. They can quote verses. They know things about the Bible. They don't know him. They're like their idols. And they use the name Yahweh. So if you said to them, you don't worship Yahweh, they'd be like, I must be some of these other people because I do. Oh, they can't see. They're spiritually blind, but they have eyes. And so what you see throughout the Bible is that it talks about this. Psalm 115 says this. Their idols, talking about other nations, the psalmist is saying, their idols are silver and gold. The work of human hands. They've created them, is what that means. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. They do not make a sound with their throat. Those who make them become like them. That's the important part if you underline. So do all who trust in them. That's us. And then you read verses in the Bible that make it really clear whether it's Jesus speaking after he tells a parable and the disciples go, why do you speak in parables? And he says, though hearing they do not hear. Are you trying to confuse people with your teaching, Jesus? I don't understand. Right, because you don't have ears to understand what I'm saying. All you can think about is the physical because you think all your problems are in the physical, but I'm talking about the spiritual. And so then he would explain it to his disciples because he gave them ears to hear and eyes to see. Can you see what's happening? Because it's not just what you can see. And when what you can see doesn't line up with what God says, that's an opportunity for trust because he's never been wrong. And what happens to many of us is we get stuck in the middle of our circumstances. That's where these people are at. And then we've been worshiping idols, even though we've been calling out to Jesus. And and we don't realize that our problem is a heart problem. And God's doing a work. And part of the work sometimes is taking us to the place of brokenness because there has to be brokenness for there to be a new beginning. Because spiritual breakthrough begins at the place of brokenness kind of like we all know before there can be a resurrection there has to be a death you know that story in john chapter 11 with jesus and his friend lazarus think about if you were in the middle of that story what that story would be like and jesus gets a message from a messenger hey your friend lazarus is sick now jesus is 20 miles away for us that's like five minutes but they're walking or riding donkeys like cam- maybe a camel but it's a day's journey and jesus is like all right and he hangs out where he's at Couple more days. The disciples see all this and then Jesus tells them in John chapter 11, verse four, don't worry, this doesn't end in death. It's for the glory of God. And then they go and if I'm like Peter or John or one of those guys, you show up and you're like, we, not only is he dead, but we missed the funeral, we're jerks. And oh, by the way, Jesus has been right about everything up until now, but I think this is the one. You're in the middle of it. Now we know because we've read the story what's about to happen. But Martha doesn't know. And so she runs out to Jesus. She says, If only you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus says, There's going to be a resurrection. Do you believe I, I'm the resurrection? She says, Yeah, in the, in the last day. Oh man, we're so guilty as Christians of even in our difficulty over spiritualizing things. That's not what Jesus is talking about there. Go get Mary. So Mary comes out. if you had been here how many people live in that land of if only if only my dreams had come true if only you had answered this prayer if only I didn't have this difficulty if only I wasn't married to this person if only I didn't have that job if only I had a better church if only my pastor would wrap this up I'd get lunch <laughs> <laughs> the problem of living in the land of if only is nothing but regret and deception and you get stuck Jesus show me where he's at Lazarus come out. Before there was a resurrection, there had to be a death. It didn't end in death, but there was a death. And to take you to a place of brokenness. It's not punishment if you're a follower of Jesus. It might be discipline. See, a lot of us in our spiritual journey, the reason you need a breakthrough is because you get to this spot, And what happens in a lot of our spiritual journey is we trust Christ. And then we start to learn the Bible. We start to grow. And we start serving. We start giving. And we know our spiritual gifts. And like these things happen. And then we get stuck. And what evangelicalism is really bad about is then we go, well, just go back and start over. Like maybe you didn't really commit yourself to Jesus because you're lukewarm. And you just to start over. And it's like, no, there's a truth about going back to the beginning. But it's because you need to go to the next place not because you weren't a Christian, you're in a dry season. You want to go places you've never been before? God's going to do things he's never done before. And some of you are going to experience pain. And so you see that through the Bible. So you get, I want to be a spiritual giant like Paul. Well, he was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was betrayed. Yeah, I don't want that part. (laughs) I want God just to make me comfortable. God is a whole lot more concerned about who you're becoming than he is with your comfort. And he promised to do a good work in you. These people, they don't know. They don't even get their problem. And so they're thinking, just government, come fix this. (laughs) Here's what we do when we don't trust, we don't think it's the government. We don't think it's this. We go, okay, so what do I got to do? Now what do I do spiritually? Give me the steps, pastor. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. And if I pray this prayer and listen to these verses and do this thing. (sighs) Jesus warns about that too, by the way. He tells a story in Matthew chapter 12. Let me put that up on the screen. I don't care if they read it while well, I'm just setting it up. It's pretty confusing to most people. Um, just remember any text can say whatever you want to say if you take it out of context. So the context of this text is that Jesus has already shown them his power over demons. And they're choosing religion over Jesus. And so you know, garrison man comes out. They've chained him up. The guy breaks the chains. Nobody wants anything to do with this guy. He runs up to Jesus. Jesus says, what's your name? <laughs> There's some miracles that I would have loved to have seen Jesus do, like walk on water, multiply bread. I don't watch these. I'll watch Gladiator. I'm not watching the kind of movies that's about to happen in Mark chapter five when he says, we are legion. For we are, what does that sound like? All these voices, we are legion. Like, what is, I don't want to be there. I'm good. Tell me about it afterwards, Jesus. <laughs> Take Peter, James, and John. (laughs) And Jesus casts the demons who ask for mercy into pigs. He didn't break a sweat. He just told them what to do and they did it. Kind of like the God who spoke everything into existence. They've seen him do that stuff. And so he tells them this made up story in Matthew chapter 12. Might have happened, but. Jesus doesn't say any names or people it just when, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person It passes through waterless places Seeking rest but finds none Then it says I will return to my house from which I came It's talking about a person When it comes It finds the house empty, swept They organized it They got more moral Then it goes and brings with it Seven other spirits more evil than itself And they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. You've chosen morality over a savior. You think the answer is finances, not your heart. Hmm. It's going to just... Wait, this is a lot later than Judges. And it keeps, you think the cycle is just in Judges? No, it keeps happening and it's a spiral and it keeps getting worse. And so a lot of times we read the Bible and we're like, that's awful. Well, we're doing the same thing, but it just keeps getting worse. And if we don't see the problem, we won't pick the right solution. The answer and what Jesus is warning them about in that parable is this, the house is undefended and it's unoccupied. And I'm the one that can defend it and I'm the one that's supposed to occupy it. And the house is your life. But you won't get until you're broken. The Bible speaks about brokenness too. And it, it always is saying good things. How about this? Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 51, verse 17. David in his repentance prayer after a sin with Bathsheba. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Don't bring me your gifts when you've got all all these idols in your life. I want your heart, a broken heart. I will not turn that away. God, break our hearts. And spiritual breakthrough, it begins with brokenness, but it advances with a God-given vision. That's what we see next. We haven't talked about Gideon yet. Don't worry. In Judges chapter 6, after the unnamed prophet comes and tells him, Your problem's a spiritual problem, it says, Now the angel of the Lord, I believe this is Jesus in the Old Testament. Some people think it's just a a messenger from God that speaks with the authority of God and on behalf of God, and sometimes that might be true. I believe here and in chapter 2, we've seen this that it was Jesus himself. Why do I believe that? I think because of the way that he speaks, uh, we see some text that I think in other places mani- shows when he's manifesting himself in this way, it's clearly the Lord that's speaking. It talks about as the angel of the Lord. Jesus hasn't come in the flesh yet. Uh, they don't know um, what that would even be like. So he came and he sat underneath uh, an oak tree. That's different words here, but uh, that's the idea. City of Oaks. So we'll put this in our context. Which belonged to Joash, the Abazrite right. Mm-hmm. There's another hard name. While his son Gideon, the name Gideon means cutter of trees. Many people believe that he's a farmer. He was beating out wheat in the wine press. But the problem is that's not where you beat out wheat. You beat out wheat on a threshing floor. A threshing floor is oftentimes on the top of a hill because you want the wind to come through because when you beat the wheat out, one of the things you want to get rid of is the shaft. The shaft is the useless stuff, like if you're shucking corn, it's just like just this, the messy stuff that's there when you're done, not the husk, not the corn, but it's just, it's just waste. And so you go out in the open, but why isn't he out in the open? Because he's scared. So here's this farmer, but he's in a wine press. Why a wine press? Well, a wine press would be a hole cut into some stone. Uh, you could put about three or four people into that. And they would crush grapes. They would, cru- they would make wine there. And so he's there because you can conceal what, he- what you're doing. It also shows he doesn't have very much food here. He's barely got enough to get by. He's a farmer. He's in this small little wine press because he's hiding, because he's afraid. It says here to hide from the Midianites. Okay, so he's hiding. That's clear. He's in this spot. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, which, think about the scene. It says that the angel of the Lord went and it sat underneath this tree. And then he's over in the wine press and and Gideon doesn't even have eyes to see that that Jesus is right there. Because it says here that the angel is the one that took the action. The angel appeared to him. It wasn't he's crushing grapes and he's like, huh, Jesus. (laughs) The angel Lord appeared to him, but it shows his patience. We don't know how long he sat underneath that tree and watched Gideon, but he did. I think, you know, if I was the Lord, I'd be like, all right, I got a universe to run. Let's make this quick, Gideon. (laughs) Jesus, just with the word of his mouth, holds it all in place. He says, The Lord is with you. And then look at this title, O oh, mighty man of valor. Wait, he's a farmer, a cutter of trees. Maybe he's a lumberjack, which is manly. But he's hiding in a wine press because he's afraid. And he barely got any food. And the word mighty there, uh, it translated, if you have an NIV, mighty warrior. uh, Mighty is the Hebrew word gibber, which is the idea of an accomplished soldier. Someone who's already done some things on the battlefield, experienced some success. But here, you've got God saying to Gideon something that Gideon doesn't even know about Gideon because he can't see. And one of the things it shows us is that God is talking about his identity apart from his activity. Hmm mighty man of valor here's where the vision begins vision is a picture of what could be and should be we know in our hearts we can feel that things are not the way they should be so there it could be better the picture in our minds of what should be true god is speaking to him vision right here when he says mighty warrior mighty man of valor he hasn't fought any battles yet that doesn't come for a little while and before we can even get to the fleece he's got some personal battles to fight Gideon said to him we know even if you think oh he wasn't hiding you know, he's not that afraid in the wine press and, and maybe he is really a soldier look at what he says here please my lord if the lord is with us pause the lord didn't say I'm with y'all anybody here have a southern translation alright so I want you to notice the person that's used here, the, the number that's used here. Is this plural or singular? Because what did he say in the verse? twelve. Verse we just read verse 13. If you look at verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, mighty man, singular, of valor. Gideon said to him, please, Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all of this happened to us? And where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? Saying, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian? Hmm. He's got like some stuff right here and some stuff wrong. And we know because we're reading it that the Lord didn't forsake them, but they forsook him. And then his wrath was going, okay, you want that? I'm going to give that to you. And all that comes with it. You want to worship creation? You want to be with these other nations? Then the other nations are going to come and rule over you. Hmm. But here Gideon, and he goes on to say, uh, uh, my family's nobodies, and I'm a nobody, and I'm the least in my family, and they're nobodies. And God has told him who, who he is here. And what we see here is that God's going to do this amazing thing in Israel, but first he's going to do something in an individual. And the revival begins at home. Some of you have seen what's happening at Asbury University in Kentucky. It's been in the news this week. If you haven't seen that, uh, what's happening is a small Christian school in Kentucky. What's happening is some people call it a revival. Other people have said, we don't want to call it a revival. There's a stirring, an awakening of some sort. There's something happening. God's spirits are doing something. Some people have tried to come in there and take control of it and let that happen. And some people try to politicize it and the, the students aren't letting that happen. And and what you find out if you ask the students from their interviews and things that they've said is that what happened is they just had a normal chapel on February 8th. So I think today's the nineteenth. Today the nineteenth. February 8th they had a normal chapel. If you're not familiar with Christian schools, a lot of times they make you go to chapel, and so they had to go to chapel. It's a requirement to stay in good standing at the school. You attend a certain amount of chapels every semester. And so for many of these people, they're not even coming out of worship. This is an obligation. And so they have a worship service. It's over with. Uh, One professor, a director of one of the uh, religious departments there, he described what happened. Um, He said this, it was a simple, regular chapel in which students stayed to pray and engaged in a measure of repentance and brokenness. Dr. Brian Shelton, chair of the Christian Studies and Philosophy Department. And what the students say happened is after, you know, they got a message, they had some announcements, sang some songs. A couple of the students stayed and prayed and repented of sin and then started singing songs. And then word got out to some of the other students, hey, some of the students are still back there singing. And other people came and then the students kept doing, and they decided, they did that for 24 hours straight. And then other people started to hear, other colleges started to hear. People started to drive from hundreds of miles away and people were confessing sin, repenting of sin. God was bringing some freedom from some addictions, some bad relationships. They aren't telling all the stories because many of it, it's private things that are taking place. But if you don't know that thing's even going on, I went uh, this Thursday night to celebrate recovery. It's a Christian 12-step program that we host every Thursday night um, at 7 o'clock if you're interested in coming. And you don't talk about who's there, and you don't talk about what's said. But the guy who was speaking put it on his website that he was going to be speaking, so I thought it was okay to say uh, that he'd be speaking. And he shared his story publicly before it's, He's the drummer for Hootie and the Blowfish, if anybody knows that song. I only want to be with you. Thank you, Darius. He's not talking about Jesus, but still. I only want to be with you, Jesus. There we go. And he talks about his story of becoming a rock star and what that looked like in life and how that happened. His parents tell him you need to get a real job and all that kind of stuff and then everything takes off. And he said, and when you're a rock star, you party like a rock star. (laughs) That's a newer song if you're not picking up what I'm putting down, but anyway, (laughs) what's the average age? Anyway, just kidding. Um, And he said, you're up on a table, drunk out of your mind, people cheer you on. Then he talked about when Hootie's fame started to fade and other bands became more popular and how hard that was internally. And he said, but here I am. I've got fame and I've got money. I don't know how life's really supposed to work. And when you party like a rock star and you're not a rock star, he said, my family started having interventions with me, but I didn't even know what was happening. They'd sit me down. They'd go, we love you. And I'd be like, oh, that's great. I love you too. But we think maybe, and I'm good. God's got a funny way of speaking through some of the humblest circumstances. His story is he built a studio on his yard separate from his house and One night he was out there pretending like he was working. He was getting drunk and couldn't make it back into the house. And so he fell asleep on the couch in the studio. And he woke up and his four-year-old daughter was on his chest. And she just wondered why he wasn't inside having breakfast with the family and watching cartoons. And she said, Daddy, what are you doing? Innocently, naively, but he heard, what are you doing? And he knew the answer was, I don't even know. And long story short is he knew one guy whose life had been consumed by drugs and that had turned around and that guy had turned to jesus and he called that guy and god turned his life around did you know the statistics on addicts there's like millions of people that are addicted to drugs and alcohol many of them prescription pills in our society and the statistics say in one study that i read 94 percent don't even know they have a problem hmm is it possible that the people around us even, even non-Christians can see that we have a problem? There's people that have criticized the Asbury revival. There's people that have championed it and tried to go there. They've cut it off right now. So if you're over 26, if you didn't know that reference I just made about the rock star, you're not allowed in. All right. If you're over 26, they stop letting you in. Because what happened was people, were come, people came from Brazil all over. Three-hour wait outside. If you ask them what they're doing, say, we just want to be in the presence of God and whatever's happening here. Because there were so many people who said, if you're 26 or over, you're not getting in. So then you start, people that were 26 and over, sending food, praying, doing all these things. So is it real? Is it not real? Hey, we need to use discernment in these things, but don't discredit it. I I promise you God's doing real stuff in some people's hearts. Here's what revival is. Revival is not when unsaved people turn to Christ. Revival starts in God's house. It's when his people, you can't revive what was never alive. So revival is bringing, it's Lazarus. It's bringing back to life something that was there at one time that is now faded. It's Demar Hamlin when he fell down on the football field and his heart stopped, but then it started back up. That's what's happening spiritually in revival. That's happening for some people there. But one of the critiques I read was, hey, there's a whole bunch of people, and I don't follow these people, so I don't know if the article's right or not, and it names all the people, and you can find it if you Google it yourself, that have been calling for revival on a daily basis on their Twitter accounts and Instagram and Facebook, and they haven't said a word about this thing happening at Asbury, because it doesn't serve their political agenda. Because when they say revival, what they mean is we want all those people out there to start acting more like us. Oh. So then your definition of revival is when the circumstances around you become more like you. I think God's definition of revival is when you become more like him. And that happens when you deal with what's going on in here. That's what God's doing here with Gideon. mighty, war, mighty I'm not a mighty warrior. He doesn't say, I'm hiding in a wine press. I'm a farmer. Which ironically, Maximus is a warrior who wants to be a farmer. Gideon's a farmer who God has called to be a warrior. Some of you... Don't do what God's designed you to do because you have a narrative in your mind of who you're supposed to be. We don't do that kind of thing. What? Some of you probably should be pastors at our church. But I'm an engineer. That's what my family does. My dad was an engineer. He had dad was an engineer. Some of you are pastors. You might be watching this. You're not supposed to be a pastor. Your dad was a pastor. Like whatever. God's called you to do. He's got a unique call in each one of our lives. Ephesians chapter two. He has created you before the beginning of the world. He had a plan for you, designed for you, that's just for you. And here, here, Gideon, he don't have any idea of God's vision for him. But we'll skip a bunch of verses because the time uh, come down to, he ends up making a meal for, what do you make for Jesus if he shows up at your house? He makes a meal for Jesus. He realizes it's Jesus. And it says in verse 24 of chapter 6, Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord, and he called it the Lord is peace. To this day it still stands. Verse 25, That night the Lord said to him, Hmm, You're going to build an altar for me. Remember what he calls idolatry in chapter two. He calls it being a whore, prostituting yourselves to these created gods. And he said, here's what, why did he sell them to slavery? Why did he let their opponents come against them? Why does he oppress them? Because you're sleeping around. I'm not good with that. He's not going to live with his rivals. He says, you kick them out. You got to get rid of them. You're going to build an altar to me? You've got some other altars you need to tear down first. So look at what he says. Take your father's bull, verse 25, and the second bull, seven years old, pull down the altar of Baal that your father had. Wait, you that, it's in your house, Gideon? And Gideon's an idol worshiper. But he knows the Bible. Remember verse 13? Why don't you do for us what you did for those people back in Egypt? My God's not doing what I want my God to do, the God that I've created, that I use the name Yahweh for. Sound familiar? Hmm. If you've ever attended here before, hopefully you're picking up what I'm putting down. Yeah, because what's happening, and remember we talked in in Judges chapter 2 and verse 10, there was a whole generation that didn't know the Lord, but did you notice that that generation still called out to Yahweh when things got bad enough? Because they knew about him. Because they lived in homes where the parents told the Bible stories, remembered the Bible verses, went to worship, but they worshiped idols. And the kids picked it up. And he says, you go to your dad's house and you tear down his bale." That your father has. And you cut down the astra. That's beside it. Verse 26. And build it. An, then you build. You want to you build an altar to me? First you got some altars to tear down. And then build an altar to the Lord your God. Because I don't want to sleep with your other lovers. On top of the stronghold here. Where everybody can see it. With stones laid in due order. Then take the second bowl and offer it as a burnt offering. You tear down the astra. Tear down the bale. What does that mean? What does that mean? It's not talking just about statues. Remember, it's what's going on in their hearts. And so for some of us, we say, well, I want to, I want to come in my life to the Lord. I want to be with the Lord. I want, I want to experience what they have at Asbury. I want a revival. And I know it's not just everybody else being, so I want God to do a work in me. And God's going, tear down the altar. You want to go to the next place in your spiritual journey? Okay. I'm saying you're not a Christian, but you've got some altars in your heart. Bales need to come down. Astros need to come down. Like what? Maybe it's your identity. You care so much about what everybody else thinks about you. Maybe you need to delete some of your social media accounts. Oh, I need it for work. Or I, need oh. I had lots of rationalizations there. Maybe maybe it's your comfort. You think, well, I want to do it as long as God does what I want him to do. That's where Gideon was at. He's gonna work in Gideon. He's transferring. He's going, you tear down the, the, the... And so then he goes at night and he does it. And he takes 10 guys with him. And we don't know, did the guys stand guard because it was dangerous to do? Or was the idol so big? That it took all 11 of them to take it down. We don't know. People give him a hard time. Gideon a hard time that preaches this passage. He took it down though. And the next day, his dad's friends wanted to kill him. And then his dad comes out and says, well, if Baal's God, let him contend for himself. Hmm. And then Gideon gets a new name. And sometimes he's referred to as that, even in another book of the Bible. The name means the one who contends against Baal. And they're mocking him. It's a sarcastic, it's like talking trash to somebody. But what a great name for a mighty warrior. Because when he goes to fight Gideon, or Midianites, it is not a battle about two armies. That's why he wheels it down all the way to 300 soldiers against a whole huge army. Because what we're actually talking about is what's reigning in your heart. Jesus says the kingdom of God has come. And as it reigns in your heart, follower of Christ, then it leaks out into the world around you. You are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill. Hmm. Old Testament, New Testament, we think it's all this. God's got a word for you today. It's not just a word about Gideon or a word about Maximus. It's interesting, though, that Maximus knew his identity, isn't it? (laughs) That scene right before he says his name, Commodus has called him a slave. Dare you turn your back on me. Slave? You have a name? Tell me. And that's when he turns around and says, Maximus Decimus Meridius. Leader of the armies of the north. They just call him Spaniard. (laughs) What they can see then husband to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and someone on a mission to seek vengeance. And that guy knows that vengeance is against him. Maximus knows who he is. Gideon's learning. Do you? And for you to become a person who walks in that, because it's true whether you know it or not. It's not about your activity. It's about your identity. Some of you live defeated lives, but the Bible says that we're more than conquerors. So, what you see or what he says? Some of you, you think, forgiveness, yeah, but I'm, I didn't deserve that, and so I'm going to work, and you're living a life indebted to God. He gave you a free gift. So, you're missing the real freedom of forgiveness. Forgiveness is incredible. Not bad for you to do good works. You've got good works to walk in. You're walking in the wrong good works because you're thinking the wrong way. He's so got to give you a new vision of what could be and what should be. And you're looking at your circumstances trying to get it. You're not going to ever find it there. What does he say? Because what you see and what he says don't always line up. That's an opportunity to trust. And what he says is, you got an altar to an idol? Tear it down. That requires what's happening at Asbury, which I've heard described as radical humility. Because God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today. Desperately in need of you to come. Will you speak to lives today? Say to them who they are. I'm talking about a thousand people. Who knows? Somebody might watch this 10 years from now on a video. Who knows how many people? There's lots of verses. Lots of truth. Sons and daughters of the king. Forgiven, redeemed. Given everything necessary for life and godliness, a royal nation, holy priesthood of people, the high priest who understands what it's like to be betrayed, what it's like to have the back against the wall, who said, this is my body broken for you, who was crushed for our iniquities, Isaiah 53, 5, who had a God-given vision for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, the joy was us being reconciled to you in right relationship. Father, will you do that right now? Will you take the effectiveness of the gospel and make it effective in some lives tangibly right now? Anybody here who doesn't truly know you but maybe believes things about you but has a version of you that would just say, I just want truth and I believe, Jesus, you are the truth and you are the way and you are the only way I'm going to have real life and I want you and turn to him in your own words, watching online in a coffee shop at home, here in this room, just turn and pray to him. Ask him to do a work in your heart. Confess sin, there's an altar to tear down. Maybe it's your phone. Would you get rid of your phone? Well, he would never ask me. What if he did? If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Mm. Maybe it's another relationship. Maybe it's another Christian relationship. Some, you know, So many people get together and they just gossip. But as a Christian, that's a, a Bible study. Well, if it's a den for sin, maybe you should stop going. Now, if they're teaching you the truth, don't stop going. There's a lot of, a lot of lies out there. You need truth to combat it cut off some relationships would you tear down that altar but I need to be like so bad maybe that's why you need to cut off that relationship father will you tear altars down right now in this moment do supernatural things I could never guess never imagine never ask you know you know the hairs on our head you know our DNA you know things I would you know thoughts before we even think them you know what's happening in my heart five minutes from now and two days ago and the same for all my friends here We need you. I pray you'd be exalted, that you'd be lifted up, and you would draw men and women to you. I'm going to say amen in a second, but if you're still in the spirit of prayer and you want to keep praying, you keep praying. If you want to come and kneel down and pray, you keep praying. If you want to go in the lobby, we won't judge you that you're leaving the service early. We'll think maybe they're going out there to have a conversation they can't have in this room. That's fine. If you want to stand up and you want to just sing these lyrics that Pastor Bryce is going to come and lead us in, if you mean them, say them. If you don't, just reflect on them and think what would it take for that to be true? in my life. Don't be a hypocrite. We're not trying to make hypocrites here. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at info at sfchurch.com. For additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.